and then uh, we will get going. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, and we're picking up at verse 12. Daniel took us all the way through verse 11 last week, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to this study today, and I want us to do it together. <clears throat> and what we're going to see as we go through here is three different kingdoms at work. And on a high level, on a very high level, and they really uh, show themselves strongly. You, we can see their purpose. We can see where they come from. And it seems like such a good place for us to be parallel to the pandemic that we're in and the challenge of leadership right now and what we're all experiencing. Who do we listen to? Who do we follow? What should we be preoccupied with? What is our purpose? There's all these different questions. And this passage in particular really helps focus on contrasting the different kingdoms that men and women are involved in and what it looks like to participate in them and what it looks like to give one kingdom preference over another. So let's take a look. Uh, and again, Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak, to uh, work through all of us. Spirit, comfort us, encourage us, heal us, teach us, we pray now through this passage, through the word that came from the Father in Jesus' name. Amen. So this starts the next morning. So I have to remind you about what happened last night. So last night was the end of Paul's kind of final attempt to really persuade his Jewish brothers and sisters. You remember, Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 9. He's desperately in love with his own people, and he's desperate for them to understand the gospel as well. The gospel has so radically changed Paul's life. He was living a life of really in the religious kingdom and doing well and doing and succeeding. And God, Jesus himself came to him face to face and taught him and led him and discipled him into the kingdom of God. And he wanted that change and that um, correction in the life of his brothers and sisters in all of Judea. And so this was going to be, he knew it, his last chance. And so he tries desperately twice to speak to the crowd. And then the last thing he did last night was he met with the Sanhedrin. Uh, and this was where the tribune wanted to get more evidence. Like, why are you so angry with this guy? Why do you want to kill him? What has he done that's deserving of a death sentence? I need to understand because I'm the one who will carry that out if, if it's deserved. And so he tried to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin for that high court, the highest court in Judaism, to tell them what, what's the case against this man. And as you know, Paul so skillfully uh, knew where he was. He knew the atmosphere that he was in. And through the Holy Spirit chose to derail the whole thing and simply say, hey, I'm here as a Pharisee who believes in the resurrection. And of course, that's a, that's a touch point. That's a point of argumentation in this religious situation. And so they get off track and then it just gets out of hand. And, and again, Paul has to be whisked out of the situation before he's killed. But you remember where that passage ended at night when Paul was getting ready to go to sleep, probably worshiping Jesus came to him again and said, I'm going to take you all the way to Rome. Well done. Now you're going to be my witness in Rome. And then he used those amazing words. It's a Greek word. It's a single Greek word, but the two words we use are take heart, take heart. Jesus came with encouragement. Take heart, Paul. I'm going to get you all the way there. You've got to know that that's in Paul's mind now as we go through the passage today, because it's, it's because he takes heart and because he trusts in the promises of God and the plan of Jesus that he's able to continue to go through what becomes a pretty intense situation continually. So here we go. Let's take a look. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath 
not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. We have gotten so far beyond um, litigation and, and the right processes here. We've gotten so far beyond any sense of a trial. We have gotten down to, we just want to murder this man. There's no pretense here at all. It's interesting that the veneer of uh, appropriateness and justification is completely gone at this point. These leaders, they just want him dead. That's all they want. They want Paul dead. They don't even care about doing it the right way. And notice the parallel again with the experience of Jesus. Uh, just a huge parallel. Jesus went out for three years among the masses of people and taught all about the kingdom of God. And then he finally went to leadership to work through that gospel with leadership as well. And that was the last week of his life. And it was very similar to this week in Paul's life. Paul has spent many years going all over Asia and all over Macedonia, sharing the gospel, the message of God, the message of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And now God is calling him, as he did Jesus, to confront leadership on the same level about the same issue. So here he is talking to leadership just as Jesus did. But notice that the will of God is different. The will of God in Jesus' case was truly actually to have him murdered because it was part of the plan. It was a necessity in the plan of God. That's not what's required in this particular story. It's important that Paul not die here. And so Jesus has told him, take heart, I will get you to Rome. But we have this plot, just as with Jesus, now here's a plot with Paul to just take his life. And it's really pretty ruthless. They, their, their hope is that as Paul is being transported from the barracks back to where the Sanhedrin meet, that they will ambush the Romans. And he will come under guard as he already has. It's not like he's going to walk there by himself. He'll be heavily guarded. And so these 40 plus men have basically said, we're willing, and we know some of us will die, but we're going to go into this. We are voracious that Paul's life be ended. And I want to suggest to you that all of this reality here is the kingdom of religion. Everyone in this piece of the story is living out of the kingdom of religion, and it's an intense kingdom. We're going to look at three kingdoms today, and I want to look at them in this way. I'm going to suggest that every kingdom has a story with a happy ending. Every kingdom has a particular faith that leads to how we act if we're a part of that kingdom, and every kingdom has a particular hope in its leadership. So this is where I'm asking for your help. So if you've got a thought here, I'm going to ask you to unmute and share it with us. But let's talk just a little bit about what is the happy ending that the religious kingdom is looking for. And we could talk about Islam. We could talk about Judaism. We could even talk about Christianity. They're all religions that, that have these three things. But what is the supposed happy ending of Judaism? What is their goal or their, what do they believe is their destiny?
um, possibly to live in a restored uh, uh, Jerusalem or a restored uh, kingdom in in uh, in Jerusalem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, based on their understanding of the promises of their God, which is God Himself, Yahweh. We've been given certain promises, and the happy ending ending is that we will be the dominant culture. We will, whoever's been oppressing us, they've lived through centuries of oppression through multiple kingdoms, and now they're under the reign of the empire of Rome. And so it's the third huge empire that's dominated them. And their hope is that we as a people, at the, because of the promises of our God, will be the dominant culture. We will be the kingdom who uh, is home to the king, and he will overthrow all of these kingdoms, and we will be at the top of the heap politically. That is the hope. So based on that, that's the happy ending they hope for, is really to be the people that dominate humanity and that reign over humanity. Uh, they live a certain way. Uh, they have faith in a certain thing. And what is the faith of Judaism based on? What's the guidance for the way they live and what they believe? Isn't it the law and the prophets? Yeah, exactly. It's what we call the Old Testament scriptures. They base their actions and their beliefs on this particular book. And in particular, that they as a people need to behave a certain way based on what that book says, right? We follow the law. Everything they argued about was the law. Jesus is going against the law. The law of Moses is what we live by. It's what our hope is in. And then the last thing is they had a particular hope in their leadership. And what, what, what were Jews looking for in their leadership? Would you say they're looking for like a savior, a redeemer, someone to set them free, throw off the oppressors? Yeah, absolutely. There was the, there was the hope of a Messiah, which was promised in their scriptures. And then also from among their own priests and their high priests, they were really looking for guidance that these men would discern the ways of God, the will of God, and they would look to these people to really uh, to know what they were to do. Uh, it was a religion that, that relied on prophets and priests to tell them what to do. And so they were looking to their leaders. And of course, the high priest is amazing, is involved in this plot. If there would be any hope for the Jews to handle Paul appropriately to do the right thing, you would think the high priest would be the one that would carry the weight of that, and he doesn't anymore in this situation. He's like, fine, let's just have him murdered. I'm, I'm in favor of that. So let's continue reading. Now, the next section that I want to read is about the kingdom of God. So the first section was about the kingdom of religion. The second one is about the kingdom of God. I want to read that, but then I want to move on and not comment because I want to end there. So then after that, we will read the third section. And the third, third section is about the kingdom of politics. And we'll do some talking there. And then I want to end with this kingdom of God so that we can contrast it with the other two. So let's get back to verse 16. And this is the kingdom of God at work here. But when the son of Paul's sister, so when Paul's nephew heard of this plot, and we don't know how this happened. This is super curious. Like did, maybe there were some kids from some of these men that were telling, hey, you know what my dad's going to do? My dad and his friends have done this. And these, the boys were talking and this is how he heard somehow. We don't know. But somehow this young nephew heard the story and it says, um, 
he went into the barracks and told Paul, and it's interesting that he had the freedom to do that, but people were allowed to go and help Paul with his needs. And so you could ask to see Paul, and this young nephew did. And here's, then Paul called one of the centurions, and he said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. So remember the leadership here. There's this tribunal who is over the entire uh, cohort here of Romans who's handling Paul's case. Under him is at least two centurions, so a couple of thousand soldiers, each with their own commander. And the centurions appear to be primarily next to Paul, and they're the ones who are working directly with him. And so that's the chain of command here. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent me, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Gosh, such an interesting story. And there's so few details. I wish there was more here. Like, why did the commander even listen to this young man? What, what uh, gave this centurion the respect of the young man to take him to the commander? And why did the commander carefully take him aside to hear what he had to say? And then why did he believe him? I don't know. I would suggest the Holy Spirit is at work here. And that's definitely a part of it because there's so many ways this very important but very small story could have been lost within the larger story. But it's not. So we'll come back to talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in this regard. But let's get through the rest of the passage right now so that we can see the kingdom of politics at work. The kingdom of politics. So verse 23. Then the commander called two of his centurions. So he, these are his direct underlings, each over 100 men. Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor, Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. And now we find out for the first time the name of this commander, Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias. It's possible that Claudius was the name of the person who was the emperor at the time this man got his citizenship. And that would have been kind of his last name or even a title, Claudius. Uh, but his, sir, his, uh, his own personal name is Lysias. To His Excellency Governor Felix. Now, I want you to remember what his story has been so far. You remember that he uh, had to go into the temple with his men because there was a riot and they were trying to kill Paul. And then he brought Paul out and he wanted to flog him to get the truth, to get at the truth of what was going on. Found out Paul was a citizen, did some serious backpedaling because he knew he was about to commit a crime himself if he actually flogged Paul without a trial. And then he decides to change course and actually go to the, Jude the Jewish high court and ask, what's the case here? What's going on? And so he talks to the Sanhedrin and, and that's a fiasco. So remember, that's how it happened. But listen to the report as he writes it to his commander. To His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. 
I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. Now, that's not the way it happened. That's not even the order in which it happened. So there's some serious spin going on here. He definitely wants to tell the story to his own advantage. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserves death or imprisonment, at least according to Roman law. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carried out the orders, and they took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipartus. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed him over to Paul, handed Paul over to them. The governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So many parallels to Jesus here. Do you remember how Pontius Pilate tried to hand this case off to a juris different jurisdiction? And he asked, you know, where Jesus was from. He was Galilean. Oh, great. That's Herod's territory. Herod's in charge there. So I get to pass it off. Uh, here, Felix had hoped to do the same. Unfortunately, uh, this Paul was under his jurisdiction, and so he holds them there. Very interesting story, and a very different story from the first section that we read. So let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of politics, or political kingdoms. And this could be about any kingdom, uh, any government on earth. But right now, let's talk about this one in particular. What do you say is the hoped happy ending of this story? What is the destiny or the hoped outcome of any government that is governing people for the good of the people? What's the hope? To look good. Definitely. Individual leaders to look good. That has never changed, right? We see that today constantly. Yeah, what else? What are the, what's the goal that they're working toward? Preservation of power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They want to preserve power. They want to stay in control for sure. Yeah. I think they want it to just go away and there to be order. Yep. Yeah. And what's the goal of order? Why do these dominant uh, empires want order? Uh, control. Because they're policing the population economically. Yeah, absolutely. They want control. They're policing humanity, basically. And I would suggest that that the goal in all of these kingdoms, really every kingdom on the earth that is driven by humans, is really some sense of utopia. They really believe that they, uh, if they were in charge, they could create a life that was good for humans. They want to create a utopia. So Alexander the Great wanted to create a utopia in all of the earth, and he felt that if he ruled the earth, he could govern it with such order in such a way that it would be a good, it would be a good situation for humanity. Now, immediately I have to say, for a particular part of humanity. Every culture, every government governs for itself. So the Babylonians wanted to have a utopia for Babylon. And uh, the Greeks wanted to have a utopia for Greece. And in the same way, the Romans wanted a Roman empire that was all that it could be for the sake of Rome. Every human government, apart from the kingdom of God, is seeking a utopia for its own. Some governments, um, have enough charity in them that they also secondarily will seek the good of others. And the U.S. has done that well over its history. 
Uh, we have definitely preferred ourselves when it comes to the choices that we make to protect our own interests. We've also been a benevolent country, but when we have to make a choice between our good and the good of others, we always withdraw to our good. And of course, this is Trump's whole platform is make America great again. Let's stop helping everyone else and let's fight again for our best interests. Let's create a, an American utopia again. And many people are believing that he can do that. And so we have, again, this idea that uh, we can achieve a utopia. So I want to think about this just a little bit in terms of, of where we are at and see that these two dynamics are still at work. And I want to help us realize that we can also participate in both of these two kingdoms that we're talking about. We can participate in the kingdom of religion and we can participate in the kingdom of politics. And when I say participate, I mean on a high level. We must engage religion because we're Christians and we must engage politics because we're citizens of a country. But the difference that we wanna talk about here is what does it look like to be fully preoccupied with to see our purpose in and to have our hope rest on these other kingdoms. If we were to fully invest in either a religious kingdom or a political kingdom, how do we live? What choices do we make and how do we experience life? So if, if I was one who said, the most important kingdom to me is the kingdom of religion and I'm a Christian, how am I gonna conduct myself? How am I gonna think and what am I gonna do? This is opposed to kingdom of God, but kingdom of religion. What does that look like? What's the happy ending to the story I'm expecting? Is it kind of similar to the kingdom of politics where in the kingdom of religion, uh, for the Jews, they want to dominate and be the dominant culture. Um, and so I suppose if I'm living that way, it means that everyone has to live according to my religion. Yeah, that's definitely a huge aspect of it, Daniel, right? Yeah, I, I believe that I have the view of life that is right, that is correct, and the story that is true. And I need others to be a part of that story as well, because it's a story I want to pervade my life. And so I'm going to fight for that story and I'm going to work for that story. Yeah. We said that um, the happy ending is that our subculture will dominate. And, and even think about, I don't know, I remember especially 30 years ago when I was involved in brickwork a lot, some of us were always looking for Christian subcontractors to work with. We were listening to Christian music and we read Christian books and we really created this culture that was a dominantly Christian culture. And that was really our hope that if I go to the right church and I read the right books and I listen to the right music, life will go well for me. And I want you to think about that a little bit. I mean, is there any degree to which you kind of think that if I do the right things, God will bless me more. God will bless me better. You know, why is this happening to me? I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church, I'm giving. Why is life not going well? And that's where this kingdom of religion can creep into us, into our lives, when we base our hope a little bit on kind of the fates of the gods. In this, in this particular story, we're actually with the one true God. But even Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. In other words, they will be Christian by name or by culture. And I will have to say to them, I'm sorry, you need to go. I never knew you. 
So it's possible even to be a Christian and to do the things of God, even to practice spiritual gifts, and yet not to, and yet to be in the kingdom of religion and not in the kingdom of God. And so I think it's important that we check ourselves and we try to discern, am I truly living in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of religion? And again, kingdom of religion is based on if I behave right and if I do the rules in the book, life will go well for me. Things will work out. I can pray for what I need to pray for and God will answer those prayers and life will go well. <clears throat> think of this too in the reverse. When we see things going poorly for us, don't we at least sometimes question, where did I go wrong? Why is God mad at me? What rule did I break? What sin am I committing? And again, the kingdom of God has none of that. Jesus said, you know, this man is not sick because of his sin or the sin of his parents. He's simply sick, you know, in this case, because this is a way God will glorify himself. So I think it's very possible. I think the Jews did this especially, but even we can do this where we forget about what the kingdom of God is like and we live in the kingdom of religion. And our hope is in rules and in fate and in a God who responds to what I want because I'm a good Christian. And we definitely don't want to go there. What about the kingdom of politics? What does it look like for you and I to play into the kingdom of politics? Or to make it a priority or to believe and hope in the kingdom of politics? Well, disappointment, at least. Yeah, explain that, Mike. Well, um, if, um, if we put our hope in man-made institutions, as in um, uh, politics, I mean, they're flawed from the basis because they are under the curse, just like everything else made, structured, and created by, by man. And uh, it's, it's always going to disappoint and not fulfill versus if our hope and faith and focus is on the kingdom of God, which is so contrary to the way that the world lives, uh, we just we just have a better outcome. We have a better attitude. Um, we're connected with the creator versus relying upon man to solve the, the world's problems. Because it's yeah. a hard issue, not a, not a policy issue. Oh, man. That is really well said. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you for that. Yeah, and, and I, it's sad to me to watch the, uh, the issue around uh, racial prejudice. You know, the, the hope is for policy. The hope is for governmental policies. And you'd think after the history that we've had for the last hundred years, we'd realize those policies are not changing the heart. Like you said, Mike, changes have to happen internally, not externally. Uh, policies can be guardrails and they can work to some degree. Uh, so that we don't totally get out of hand and become just openly destructive and openly loveless, but they are not going to make the changes that we really need. There really isn't a hope in that, and it's sad to watch our own country and even maybe some of our friends really hope in, in policy changes that will make a difference. And, and you and I know that's not going to change. This sin is just going to go underground and it's going to show its head somewhere else over and over and over again. It goes from slavery to mass incarceration to the war on drugs uh, it just it just keeps popping up in so many different ways. And so we definitely don't want our hope to be here. We don't want to believe that this is the way uh, that we should be led. So let's take a look at that last section now and see the kingdom of God at work. So back to your Bibles, Acts chapter 23, starting with verse 16. So we already read this, but I'll read it again. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, 
Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand and drew him aside and asked, what is it that you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So let me just briefly outline for you, in light of the three questions, what's the happy ending? What's the faith we live by? And what's our hope for leadership in the kingdom of God? I would suggest, based on my understanding of the scriptures, that the happy ending that we have, of course, is um, the coming together of heaven and earth. But that's the ultimate ending, that God created all of mankind and the earth as a home and humans as his people. And, uh, and then gave us free will so that we might love him openly and voluntarily. And of course, we know how that went. So God has been working throughout him in history to reunite heaven and earth and to bring back into harmony all of creation. And he's doing that through Jesus Christ. So our ultimate hope is not a utopia here on earth. And our ultimate hope is not that we as Christians will dominate the earth and be in charge. Our hope is in actually a new heaven and a new earth that's actually quite different. So our hope is in a life after life and a kingdom after this kingdom. Now, we know that we aren't only hoping for the future, that God allows us to actually taste that coming kingdom today. And so it's not just a life that's waiting, a life that's on hold and just goes on about its business until Jesus returns. But it's a life that has already begun. Eternal life has begun now, and this is our hope. But we know that policies are not going to do it. We know that governments are not going to work it out. We know that being a good Christian isn't really going to lead us anywhere. So neither religion nor politics is our hope. And participating and hoping in them and placing our purpose and our hope in those things is not going to lead us where we want to go. But instead, we specifically place our hope in this story that Jesus is going to return. And that when he returns, he will make everything right and make relationships right. And then he actually will create a utopia. Uh, called eternal life, called the kingdom of heaven, called heaven and earth together, the new heaven and the new earth. So then how do we live? And this is where I think it's a challenge to contrast living religiously versus living in the, living in the kingdom. But I would say this, that we live by, um, we practice the teachings of Jesus and we walk by faith in the Holy Spirit. And this is different than we uh, obey the Bible. We don't obey the Bible. We don't obey the rules of the Bible. We don't take the Bible as policy for life. We don't, you know, some would say, I remember this phrase was a lot going around a lot in the 70s and 80s, that the Bible is an instruction manual for life. The Bible has truth, is truth. It's God's deposited truth. Absolutely. There's much to learn there. But it's not a list of 3,000 rules to live by. It's actually an explanation of who God is, of who we are, of what God has intended. And so we don't follow the rules or break the rules. That's not the way that we live. We live practicing the teachings of Jesus, working to be a person like the person of Jesus was. 
And it can sound like following rules is the same thing, but you know that it's not. You know that it's not. The Jews followed rules, and they followed the rules of a God who said, I'm a God of love and grace, abounding in love. And would you characterize these Jews at the time of Jesus and Paul, were they driven primarily by love? Could you characterize them as governing the people with love? Could you characterize them as gracious and generous? Not at all. They were the opposite of all of that. Yet they were working hard to follow the rules. And I, I believe, and I'm sure you do too, that we can do this as well. We can fall into a legalism. And I'm just trying to follow the rules and I'm trying to do what the Bible says I should do. And you're not doing what the Bible says you should do. And there's that same trap. This is the kingdom of religion. And this is not the kingdom that we are a part of. The Bible absolutely instructs us on the will of God and the ways of God. But what's key is the person of Jesus and not the book of rules, following after the person of Jesus and doing it not as a disciplined human who's doing the right behaviors, but as a human who walks in step with the Holy Spirit. And to me, gosh, there's so much relief in this idea. And I know it's not a new idea, but I would challenge you, my friends, that we don't live this way necessarily every day, all day long. And this is the calling, is that we walk by the Holy Spirit. We believe in a living God who instructs us daily in how we can live and what it means to live like Jesus. Sometimes God will call us to do one thing, and at another time, he'll call us to do something quite contrary. You can look at Jesus and how they pushed him in one direction, and he said no. And then someone tried to push him in a different direction, and he said yes. And Jesus did things that seemingly were contradictory. They weren't morally opposite but they seemed contradictory. There was a time when it was right to respect certain foods. And then there was a time when you said, it doesn't matter, you eat whatever food you want. And that's the constant changing of the truth of God as we follow Jesus. Peter followed a rule book that said, never eat pork and never eat anything else but these certain animals. Then the Holy Spirit gives him a dream and changes the rule and says, okay, that rule's gone, no more. Now I'm saying to you, all things are available. And it was a metaphor, right? It was a metaphor for Gentiles, that God desires all humans and not just kosher humans to belong to him. And that's the difference. And finally, the kingdom of God puts its hope in leadership in a different way. And again, I want to contrast this with you. But those who live in the kingdom of God put their hope specifically in King Jesus himself and the outworking of the plan of God. Those who live in the kingdom know that the will of God will always be done. It may not look like it in individual circumstances. And in certain places, it may look like this is going the wrong way so badly. And in this way, horrific things happen. And things that, according to the values of God, would not be his will still happen. And yet it's easy to think God is not in control or God's will is not being done. But even in the murder of Jesus Christ, the will of God was done. When Caiaphas said, this man must die, he was speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit, and the will of God was fulfilled. And we, in the same way, uh, have to wrestle through circumstances that don't look like God is in control. And in fact, the will of other people is at play, but still, on a higher level, the will of God is being done, and the work and purposes of God are being worked out. So let's chat about this just for a couple of minutes today. Right now, what does it mean for us to keep ourselves free from the kingdom of politics and the kingdom of religion and truly live in the kingdom of God right now? What does that look like? Anybody have any thoughts just right off the top? Uh, 
I think about it in the way that we're looking at the end goal, like you were pointing out earlier, that the end goal of us is restoration of relationship with God without our sin being an obstacle. And so when we don't have things work out for us, we feel um, like our hard work is not paying off or uh, other frustrations with systems of government or systems of, of, of earning divine reward, we need to reframe it in context of what that end goal is, where mm -hmm. we're trying to be in good, wholesome relationship with God as the end goal. Yeah, so good. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, what else? I think that Jesus himself summed it up in the first two commandments to love God and to love our neighbors as ourself. And it's not, that doesn't mean to love my neighbors who love me back, but to just, just exhibit that love. Um, as, as my former pastor in California used to say, warts and all, you know, we're called to accept one another words and all, mm -hmm. and to love one another um, uh, as, only, as only Christ could love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. What does it look like to engage the conversation and even the action around racial injustice out of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of religion or politics? How does a person of the kingdom of God engage that issue right now? Our, our first impulse as we in, encounter anyone in the conversation should be respect and compassion for anyone involved mm -hmm. yeah. and, and not trying to exchange one, you know, not trying to seek vengeance on behalf of a, a group of people and not trying to, to tear down any particular um, people or people group. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a third option to the two options that are out there right now, right? Yeah. It's an option we don't see exercised too much. Yeah. How do you wrestle among your own family and in your own mind around COVID and what you should and shouldn't do? How does the pandemic, how does the kingdom of God operate within the pandemic? Oh, <laughs> I know, we've had a lot of discussions here about that and elsewhere I've had about wearing of masks in public with my own family and friends and the idea that wearing a mask doesn't really protect yourself. So why, why do you do it? Why is the government telling you to do it? It doesn't help us. But the fact is that it helps somebody else and that some stranger you may never meet may not become sick because you you wore your mask and didn't know you were sick. And so that sort of um, distant compassion. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, if my first thought is not this mask will work because I believe in, in politics and that this is the right thing to do and so I'm going to wear the mask. That's not my first thought. But my first thought is I, I need to express love to every human within my purview. Yeah. Maybe wearing a mask a lot says love less than not wearing a mask. Could be, could absolutely be. Yeah. Um, I, for 
the last couple questions, I just keep thinking the key for me is to plug into the Holy Spirit, um, especially the last one, just because I don't know what to believe and I don't fully know what's right. And so just like hiding under his wing every day and praying um, and really trying to listen to the Holy Spirit for what is right for me and my family and what to say and what to do and all that. Yeah. And that can seem so small and so innocent. I, this story baffles me that the kingdom of God in this particular story with Paul chose a child. Uh, there's just too much vulnerability to me. I mean, Paul could live or die based on this one night and God entrusts the key. The key to the story is a child. And I just wonder if it isn't because there were no adults in the story that were really available at this. It, it was such an intense situation. There were such uh, people had are falling on certain sides and you're either on one side or the other. So everyone was that was on the side of murdering Paul was out screaming and yelling about it. And so anyone who was in favor of Paul not dying was probably hiding and, and couldn't really stand up for Paul. But God in his power and wisdom uses a child uh, who overhears a story and somehow that story gets to the right place and Paul is rescued. It's just an incredible story. Such a Holy Spirit story. There's no politics and there's no religion at play there. It's just simply the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Any other thoughts? What does it look like to live in a pandemic in the kingdom of God? I was just thinking how important prayer is and that we have to live with prayer every day and asking God to work and be at work and really relying on asking God for what we need and asking God to um, make changes in the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I want to suggest, too, that you think about what these two women just shared with us, being in touch with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit, and being engaged in prayer, and see them as significant work. See them as something to, to not just check a box on to say, I did that today, but how hard do I work at listening to the news and staying up on all the information about what's going on? How, how much of my heart and my time is preoccupied in fear uh, or in confusion about what I should and shouldn't do? What if we reinvest time that is kind of spent either in the political kingdom or in the religious kingdom, and we invest it in the kingdom of God and actually spend considerable amounts of time in prayer, going back to prayer throughout the day uh, and engaging the Holy Spirit regularly, not just kind of in the morning, hey, God, I'm available if you want to do something, see you at the end of the day but just kind of ongoing throughout the day engagement in prayer and in the Holy Spirit, truly saying my highest hope is in the spirit of God at work in me and those around me. And that's what will drive me. And that's where I will derive my thoughts and my behaviors. And ultimately my actions will be through prayer and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a good way to live for sure. Well, let's, uh, let's turn our attention towards the table. Um, and as we approach the table today, such a good opportunity to, uh, to go to prayer and to go to the Holy Spirit. And we're going to give you some time to take communion during their first two songs, but I want to encourage you to do this before you do. Take it with the, your household there where you are. But <clears throat> based on some of the prayer that we had when the gathering began, there was a suggestion that we remember 
where we began individually with Christ. Um, when did you really begin to walk with Jesus? When did you turn to him? What was it like? What was that point in your life like? And uh, <clears throat> this doesn't have to be deep or take a long time, but I just encourage you, before you eat the bread and drink the cup, remember where you were when you first received that good news, when you first believed that Jesus is your Savior, that he is the Christ. Where was your heart? What did he save you from? Remember where you started. Remember where you started as you take it. That's why we remember. Jesus is saying, remember where it all started. In this upper room, with this wine and with this bread, this is where it started. So as you take it, remember where it started for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize you as Lord, and we thank you that you are indeed authority over all authority. And we affirm today that you have authority over all of those powers and principalities. We affirm today that you have all authority, all uh, governance over all political authorities and over all kings and governors. And we trust you for that. And we believe that you are working out your will. We believe that we are in Praise you. Thank you for what you give us. Thank you for inviting us into the kingdom. We want to live as kingdom citizens above all to lead us. I just be praying to you.